Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Rondi Hagerman. She is the medical director of the UC Davis Mind Institute, an international research center focused on medical investigation of neurodevelopmental disorders. With over 30 years of experience, Dr. Hagerman is a leading expert in the diagnosis and treatment of neurodevelopmental disorders such as Fragile X Syndrome and Autism. She has authored numerous articles and book chapters and is recognized for her contributions to clinical research in this field, most notably the discovery of the FAXTAS Syndrome. She was recently recognized by Research.com as one of the top female scientists in the world. In this episode, we talk about the Fragile X and FAXTAS Syndrome, the difference between phenotypes and genotypes, and explore the question of whether we are defined by our genetics. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome, Professor Rondi Hagerman. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in genetic disorders? And overall, how did you end up where you are now? Sure. So, um, well, my history goes back to the fact that I was raised in Berkeley, and I went to Davis as an undergraduate, uh, and I loved my life at UC Davis. Uh, then I went on to medical school um, at Stanford and and uh, worked at the University of Colorado for um, uh, over 20 years. And um, what brought me back to Davis is there was an endowed chair um, that uh, they wanted me to apply to. They called me up. And so uh, the nice thing about uh, Davis is it's close to Berkeley where I have my family, my primary family. And um, uh, I like the weather in California better than in Colorado because I was at University of Colorado for 20 years. Um, so it was a nice opportunity uh, to be uh, to have an endowed chair, which means that they fund uh, your salary so that you don't have to see, uh, you know, patients to regain your salary. You can see as many patients as you want and do the research that you want. So it's uh, financially very helpful for research. And that's what brought me back uh, to Davis. And they were also building the MIND Institute, which stands for Medical Investigation of Neurodevelopmental Disorders. And that's my field. That's what I wanted to do more of is find better and better treatments for kids with neurodevelopmental disorders. That's amazing. So as we go throughout this interview today, we wanted to make a distinction between the genotype and the phenotype. Could you give a pretty brief description of what is genotype versus phenotype? Absolutely. So the genotype means what are the underlying genes that lead or gene mutations, if you will, that lead to a specific disorder. And the phenotype is how that manifests clinically, like the behavioral features, the physical features, the cognitive features. Um, and I have always had a great interest in um, different causes of autism, particularly Fragile X syndrome, mm -hmm. which is the most common single gene cause of autism. 
And so a lot of my work has really looked at genotype-phenotype correlations with individuals that have fragile X syndrome or a full mutation, but also we came, became much more interested in carriers also. And at a high level, could you explain what the fragile X genotype is? Yes. So there's a very important gene on the bottom end of the X chromosome called the FMR1 gene. And that's at XQ27.3. So that's at the bottom end of the X chromosome. And when that uh, gene is mutated, and the mutation uh, consists of an expansion of the CGG repeats on the front end of the gene. And when that expansion is greater than 200 repeats, that is what we call a full mutation. And the cell basically turns off the gene so it no longer produces messenger RNA or protein. Now, everybody has this gene. It's very important for intellectual development, early and late development in life. Um, but uh, people in the general population have between five up to about 45 CGG repeats. And if you have um, 55 to 200 repeats, that's called a carrier. And a carrier does not have fragile X syndrome. Uh, just the opposite. Instead of the gene turning off, it becomes overly active and produces too much messenger RNA or copies of the gene. And those excess copies of the fragile X gene can cause toxicity. And that toxicity can lead to the problems that carriers have. And about 20% of the women have early menopause or menopause before age 40. So it's the most common cause of what we call primary ovarian insufficiency or early menopause. It can also cause depression and anxiety. We call that FAXAND or Fragile X-associated neuropsychiatric problems uh, or uh, yeah, neuropsychiatric disorders, basically, or conditions. Um, and it uh, can also lead to a very severe neurodegenerative disorder, not in all carriers, but in about 40% of the males and about uh, 16 to 20% of the females. And that's called the Fragile X-associated tremor ataxia syndrome or FAXTAS. Could you briefly explain why males are more susceptible to that neurodegenerative disorder? Yeah. So males only have one X chromosome, whereas females are buffered with a second X chromosome. So that if you have a premutation on your only X, you're going to show the effects of that. Whereas if you have two Xs and the other one is normal, it can buffer you. So females in general are less affected uh, with fragile X syndrome, uh, sometimes don't have intellectual impairment um, and and they are less affected uh, by fa uh, by fax tasks not only in prevalence but also in severity that makes sense you mentioned fax tasks could you explain how it shows itself phenotypically and how that differs from fragile X Yes. So what happens typically in the 60s is individuals can develop an intention tremor 
That means if they are trying to do something like pick up food, it can uh, fall off their fork because they have a tremor. It can cause problems with handwriting or buttoning buttons or getting dressed. That's called an intention tremor. So it's a tremor with activity. And then usually within two years, balance problems start, and that's called ataxia. So they may be unsteady in walking, and typically they fall frequently. So sometimes this is misdiagnosed as Parkinson's disease, um, but you have to do a Fragile X DNA test to know if a patient is a carrier or not, and then that'll get you thinking about fax tasks. Hmm. So about one in 200 individuals, or actually one in 200 females and about one in 400 males in the general population has a Fragile X pre-mutation. So it's pretty common. Again, not everybody gets fax tas or or fax poi, the early menopause, or fax and the psychiatric problems, um, but they do occur, and uh, doctors need to know about it. Definitely. So, with the premutation carriers, women are more likely to have it because they have two X chromosomes. But when it comes to actually showing the full or having the full mutation men are more likely because there's only one and the one will, there's no buffer zone like you mentioned earlier, correct? Yeah, so that's almost correct. So uh, because females have two X chromosomes, they can have a greater prevalence for the mutation. Mm -hmm. So one in 200 in females versus one in 400 in males. But they are buffered from the pre-mutation problems because of the other normal X. So... Um, they have less problems with fax tasks, but they're also buffered from the full mutation problems of Fragile X syndrome. So they are less commonly intellectually impaired. So of a female that has a full mutation, about a third will have an IQ less than 70, so will have intellectual impairment. About a third will have a borderline IQ, and a third will have an IQ in the normal range. This is females with a full mutation. But even those females with a full mutation can have um, uh, learning problems. Mm -hmm. uh, those females with a normal IQ can have learning problems or emotional problems. Whereas males with a full mutation, at least 85% have intellectual disability. Okay. And could you describe how you discovered FACSTAS and why it is such an important discovery for genetics? Yes. So... Um, I listen to the mothers of the kids with Fragile X that I follow, and besides telling me about the problems that their children with Fragile X syndrome have, they were also telling me about the problems that their fathers, or in some cases, uh, uh, grandmothers or uh, great-grandparents have. And the fathers of many of these carrier women were having problems with tremor and balance and then cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. And so I started seeing these individuals as part of a grant, looking at a whole family study of Fragile X families. And all of the older males had the same thing. They had the onset of tremor, and then within two years, they developed the balance problems or ataxia and falling. And a few years after that, they started developing memory problems, neuropathy, cognitive decline. And they really went downhill. And their MRI had the very 
you know, classical findings that we have described associated with FAXTAS with white matter disease. And so I presented the first six cases at a national conference in the year 2000 in Los Angeles to a group of families. There was about 200 families in the room, and I presented the first six cases. I thought it was pretty rare, and then I said, have any of you had male relatives, fathers, grandfathers, or even grandmothers that had similar problems? And about half of the room raised their hand. And at that moment, I knew it was not rare. It was a common problem. And so we reported it in 2001, and it opened up a whole field of a new neurodegenerative disorder called um, FAXTAS. And now there's been thousands of papers written about FAXTAS. It's been identified in, in almost all countries where it's been looked for, and it's a relatively common problem. Now, if I have this correct, please correct me if I'm wrong. It is the first pre-mutation neurodegenerative disease that we have discovered, or correct? Or yeah, so the pre-mutation means uh, 55 to 200 mm -hmm. CGG repeats, and FAXTAS is the first neurodegenerative problem that has been found with a fragile X pre-mutation. Okay. Now, FAXTAS typically doesn't occur in those with a full mutation. It's very rare that that would occur with a full mutation because most people with a full mutation have the gene completely turned off, no message, no protein. Or if there's girls, they're you know half the level of message, half the level of protein. Um, but FAXTAS is called by is caused by having too much messenger RNA that binds proteins that are important for neuronal survival. And that's what causes the toxicity. And so most individuals with a full mutation, unless they were completely unmethylated or mosaic, meaning some cells with the pre-mutation, some cells with the full mutation, um, they do not develop uh, FAXTAS. Okay. You mentioned when you were presenting that you were surprised that half the room raised their hand. Could you speak a little bit more on the prevalence of FAXTAS and Fragile X and how it impacts societies in more ways that we are more ways than we are aware of? Yes. Yeah, so um, first of all, the premutation is pretty common in the general population. As I mentioned, the full mutation is less common. It's about one in five thousand has the full mutation. Uh, but the full mutation is the most common inherited cause of intellectual disability, where it can affect many people in a family. So, uh, say a father who's a premutation carrier, he has 10 daughters. All of those daughters will be premutation carriers. Mm. Uh, because it stays as a premutation going from father to daughter. And of course, if they had gotten the Y chromosome, they would be sons. So all daughters are carriers of carrier fathers. But then those women go on to have a children with the full mutation. So it only expands to a full mutation when it goes through a female. Mm. We don't know exactly why that is, but that's when it occurs. So all of those women are at risk to have children with Fragile X syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, um, you know, it's important if they want to have normal children, uh, they can do in vitro fertilization or can adopt or have an egg donation. So there's a lot of reproductive technology that can help women not have children with Fragile X syndrome. So in many countries, there are pockets of individuals affected by Fragile X. Like we've done one study in Colombia and Ricarte, a little village outside of Cali, Colombia, has over 30 individuals with Fragile X syndrome there and many, many carriers. And it's a village that's only about, you know, one to 2,000 large. So these are... Um, genetic clusters or pockets uh, where the culture of the village is such that um, they're used to, you know, creating jobs and, and uh, having kids with intellectual disabilities and adults too. The reason why there's so many there is a founder effect. Mm -hmm. So the three families that founded that village um, coming from Mexico or Spain, uh, included carriers, and then they went on and had daughters and subsequently children and grandchildren with Fragile X syndrome, and the society got, you know, very used to, you know, being very tolerant and accommodating and supportive of individuals with those problems. So oftentimes a carrier may move away but then when she gets pregnant, she might come back and have her child in that village where it's known, you know, how to live well with a child with an intellectual disability. So this uh, disorder is very important for female reproduction. It's very important for aging um, because we do think um, – that there are important treatments that can be beneficial for individuals with the premutation or the full mutation. Could you explain why some of the people with FAXTAS develop symptoms much later on in life? Yes. So um, FAXTAS, again, involves tremor and balance problems, and it usually doesn't start until the 60s, although on occasion it can start earlier. And the higher the CGG repeat within the premutation range, the higher the level of messenger RNA and the more toxic it is to the brain. So the age of onset correlates with the CGG repeat number. And this has to do with the buildup of toxicity over time. And... Um, that toxicity includes mitochondrial dysfunction and the formation of inclusions. These are um, packets uh, like a football in the nucleus that has the excess messenger RNA together with the proteins that it sequesters. Hmm. And uh, it takes a while for those inclusions to form and it takes a while for the toxicity and the inflammation to lead to neuronal cell death and death of the astrocytes and then degeneration of the white matter disease. And that usually takes about 50, 60 years. You've said white matter disease a couple of times now. Could you briefly explain that? So white matter disease is um, seen on MRI. 
And what you see on MRI is uh, there is a hyperintensity of the white matter in the brain. And this is where um, we can document there sometimes has been a little what we call microbleeds and inflammation sets up and astrocytes die. And this is what leads to the hyperintensity uh, seen on MRI. And the degree of white matter hyperintensity that we see in the brain correlates with the cognitive deficits. And eventually, these individuals uh, have memory loss, executive function deficits, and eventually develop dementia. About 50% of the males, fewer of the females develop dementia, but still there can be cognitive deficits even in the females. Okay, very interesting. And could you explain further some of the differences phenotypically between FAXTAS and Fragile X? Yes. So um, uh, guys with Fragile X syndrome have intellectual disability in almost all of the cases. Um, uh, and the degree of intellectual disability correlates with the level of the Fragile X protein produced. So most of the time in a male, the gene shuts off and there's no message, no protein produced, and that causes intellectual disability, usually in the mild to moderate range. Um, but in those with the premutation, they usually do not have intellectual disability. In fact, mm -hmm. they can be extra smart. Mm -hmm. They're producing a lot of the Fragile X protein, but they're also producing excess messenger RNA, and that leads to the toxicity in aging. So again, they don't have intellectual disability. We see a lot of doctors, lawyers, jet pilots, you know, priests, clergymen, you know, people in, you know, great professions. Um, uh, and oftentimes they are quite smart. Um, in fact, we had to recruit controls um, uh, from our emeritus faculty at UC Davis to match their IQs. So oftentimes they can have anxiety and can have a little bit of ADHD or be on the driven side for high achievement. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why they go to graduate school or, you know, become well-educated. Now, anxiety can also occur in Fragile X syndrome, but it's more severe anxiety. Mm -hmm. And the severity of the anxiety can lead to uh, autism spectrum disorder. So they can be socially anxious and avoidant of eye contact and social interaction in those with Fragile X syndrome. About 60% of those with Fragile X syndrome can have autism. And oftentimes the autism is diagnosed first. Mm -hmm. And that's why from a medical perspective, anybody with intellectual disability or autism spectrum disorder needs to have a Fragile X DNA test. Mm -hmm. And is that common practice now to do the genetic testing as well? Or is it still typical that they'll get diagnosed based on behavioral aspects? So it is common practice among physicians. Say a person is diagnosed with autism by a psychologist mm -hmm. uh, meeting DSM-5 criteria. And if they don't have a medical evaluation, they may never get genetic testing ordered. 
So it is critically important to have the medical evaluation and genetic testing done to see if you're dealing with uh, autism caused by fragile X syndrome or autism caused by another disorder. And there are over 500 causes of autism. So autism is a very heterogeneous disorder. Some are gifted, some are severely retarded, uh, I mean severely intellectually disabled. So it, it's quite variable. That was the point I really wanted to touch on was autism is a phenotypic expression, correct? Correct. So it's caused by a plethora of different things. And I feel like so many people think, oh, you have autism. That is the entirety of what you have. But no, there's so many different things that cause it. And we need to be aware of maybe what's causing it for each individual so they can get the proper treatment to better improve their lives. Is that how you view it? Absolutely, you are right. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Absolutely, you are right. And it's important for every physician to think that way. If you make a diagnosis of autism, what is the cause? Mm -hmm. So genetic testing is always indicated. Mm. And the first two tests you do are is the Fragile X DNA test, and usually you do... Um, a microarray looking for deletions or duplications that can cause autism. And if those tests are negative, you do what's called whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing. That's mm -hmm. looking for just little small point mutations throughout the genome. So you have to do that. And when you do the genetic testing, you can find about, you know, 40 to 60% of the cause of autism in that case. And it's important to know the cause because there's different types of targeted treatments with different types of causes. Hmm. So I work on developing targeted treatments for fragile X syndrome and for premutation involvement that can reverse the neurobiological abnormalities. And one example of such of a targeted treatment is metformin. Mm -hmm. So metformin uh, is a target. It's it's a medication that's used to treat diabetes, but fragile X patients rarely have diabetes because the um, uh, the uh, insulin receptor is actually upregulated, and the downstream of that insulin receptor is called the mTOR pathway, and that is overly active in fragile X syndrome. And metformin actually lowers the level of activity of the mTOR pathway. So it actually reverses some aspects of fragile X syndrome. Could you briefly explain what mTOR does? Yeah, that mTOR pathway is linked to a lot of different pathways, and it produces, when it's overactive, it produces excess number of proteins. Mm -hmm. And so fragile X patients have large testicles uh, at puberty and beyond because of too much protein produced. And when you put them on metformin before puberty, usually the testicle size is normalized because excess protein is not produced and there's better connections in the central nervous system. And it can oftentimes help with language and behavior, which can be problematic in those with fragile X syndrome when that pathway is overactive. So there's other targeted treatments being developed also, 
And we've studied CBD or cannabidiol. Mm -hmm. And that is also very helpful for Fragile X syndrome. It's what we call a GABA agonist. So it helps the inhibitory system to work better. It's anti-inflammatory, um, and it really helps behavior, uh, anxiety, even seizures in those with Fragile X syndrome. Very interesting. What is the hormone profile with those with Fragile X? If they're having enlarged testes, would they have much more testosterone, and does that lead to any issues? Uh, very good question. No, they don't have excess testosterone uh, because the proteins in the testicle uh, are proteins related to structure, not hormones that make the testicle enlarged. Mm. And so lowering the mTOR pathway will lower that. However, pre-mutation patients do develop low testosterone because the toxicity of the excess message um, impacts the cells uh, that are producing testosterone in the testicle. And so um, individuals with the men with the premutation uh, can develop low testosterone in their 60s and even erectile dysfunction, and that can happen well before tremor and balance problems. And then when it comes to the tremor, I've heard that ketogenic diets have helped people with tremors. Have you guys explored nutrition in any regards to treating some of these symptoms? Yes, we haven't done a ketogenic diet, but we have uh, done a study of compounds that have sulforaphane. Mm -hmm. So sulforaphane is present in um, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and broccoli. Uh, so it's a protein that has sulfur in it. And what that does when you eat sulforaphane is it turns on uh, a very important, what we call transcription factor called NRF2. And that is a factor that lights up all the antioxidant pathways in the neuron. It facilitates the development of those pathways. Um, and NRF2 uh, then is a great antioxidant. Mm -hmm. And when you eat sulforaphane um, in your diet, that helps to engender an antioxidant effect. And we're studying whether that can be helpful in FACTS tests. One of the things we found is that um, uh, the NRF2 can also bind to the Fragile X or FMR1 DNA, and that can upregulate some of the FMRP levels. So that's a very exciting finding. We haven't published it yet, but we're excited. Could the ingestion of more sulforaphane help patients that also have Parkinson's as well? Yeah, that's a very good question. It has been studied in some other neurodegenerative disorders, and I think the research is very spotty. It, there's also two studies that show that sulforaphane in the diet can help those with autism. Hmm. Are you aware that broccoli sprouts have the like most bioavailable amount of sulforaphane? Yeah. Yeah, because there's a woman, Dr. Patrick, Rhonda Patrick, who has podcasts and she talks a lot about the impact of sulforaphane and 
where to get it and like how to best do it in your pot in her podcast how to best f- eat it and like where it's most bioavailable so that's how i've been familiar with it before but that's very interesting that there's also nutritional aspects that could improve these people's lives absolutely but when we when you guys are looking to improve the lives of patients what factors are you targeting so um for those with fragile x syndrome the most important uh problem i think is their intellectual disability and the severity of their autism uh and the severity of their anxiety which leads to other behavior problems for instance if they get into a new situation and are very anxious they may become aggressive mm-hmm. And start hitting people, and that can be very problematic for the family. Or they can run away or scream and have a tantrum in a shopping center. So those are problematic uh, behaviors, uh, problems with language development. Uh, We also want to improve. So that's one of the things we're looking at with the metformin clinical trial is can we improve language we are also going to start another trial called the TETRA trial. This is an enzyme uh, that breaks down cyclic AMP, which is an energy compound that can connect two neurons. And individuals with fragile X have very low cyclic AMP. So the TETRA medication can increase the level of cyclic AMP in those with fragile X because it inhibits the enzyme that breaks down cyclic AMP. So it's a PDED4 inhibitor. And so we're very excited about that trial in Fragile X because uh, last year in adult patients with Fragile X, it improved the IQ. Mm. It's amazing. And how do you involve the impacted communities in the research process? Do you work with them directly? Yes, so a lot of my practice is seeing uh, children and adults with Fragile X syndrome, so I work with them on a regular basis to find a medication combination that works best for them and to get them into the best therapies. Uh, We've also targeted various therapeutic interventions here. So uh, we're dedicated to doing trials that can improve the quality of life in individuals with Fragile X syndrome. And for those with fax tests, we really want to find a medication that can help with the mitochondrial function, the oxidative stress, can lower the tremor, and can improve the balance problems and even cognition in those with fragile with fax tests. And what are some of the metrics you use to look at the success of a trial? So we like to use quantitative metrics. Okay, so. Um, in fax tests, we have quantitation of the tremor called the Kinesia 1. It measures tremor severity. We have a gait right that measures the degree of instability when they walk. And even when they walk, carrying out cognitive tasks mm-hmm. like serial nine, um, uh, you know, counting backwards, Mm -hmm. subtracting from a hundred. Those, you know, can bring out balance problems when you have to really think cognitively about uh, what the mathematical um, uh, problem is. Um, 
We also like to quantitate IQ, mm-hmm. but the problem is most IQ tests you can't do but once a year because there can be a practice effect. Mm-hmm. But now we have what's called the NIH toolbox that Dr. David Hessel here at the Mind Institute has modified so that it can work well with individuals who have intellectual disability. And so it's a computerized cognitive task that you can use repetitively, you know, even after a 14-week period. Hmm. So it can give you some measure of cognitive abilities over time, you know, with a shorter time period of treatment, you know, less than one year. And so most of the time, most of these studies last about 14 weeks. And so also Len Abadudo, uh, who has an office right next to me, has developed um, a parent-implemented language intervention with his team where they can have a very um, robust quantitative measure of language abilities, um, and that's also helpful. We also have behavior questionnaires that we use, but sometimes they can have a practice effect, whereas these other quantitative measures, including EEG measures, mm-hmm. um, they don't have a practice effect because um, it, it, it's done automatically by the brain. What is the EEG, real quick? So EEG electroencephalogram. So we do uh, what's called ERG uh, studies looking at uh different paradigms, like how the brain processes, um, say, a series of beeps when there is an unusual oddball beep. So it could be beep, 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 beep. And so how the brain responds to that different sound is important to look at. Um, And the processing of auditory or visual stimuli can depend on uh, the fMRP level. We're also doing an uh, electroretinogram where we do a flashing light into the eye and look at the uh, waves of retinal processing of visual stimuli. And the B wave, the amplitude is brought down when there is a deficit of fMRP. So we're, we're doing a study of that throughout the Fragile X spectrum and also into autism and relating it to newer measures of fMRP in the blood. And could you explain a little bit what fMRP is? Right. fMRP is the protein produced by the Fragile X gene. And the more fMRP you have, the smarter you are, even in the general population. And, but that's also true for Fragile X. And so if you're a female and you're producing half the level of fMRP uh, uh, compared to normal, but twice as much as a male, you'll have a higher IQ than the male, but lower than the mean of the general population. So the more fMRP you produced, the higher your IQ. And then if you have the full mutation, does that protein not get produced? Right. Okay. Because the gene is turned off. Okay. It's methylated. Makes sense. Is another issue with IQ testing the fact that it is a normal distribution that gets updated regularly? So someone who tested and had, say, 100 IQ 30 years ago is not the same level of intellectual ability as someone who currently has 100 IQ? So the older you are... Uh, the IQ norms change, and they go down with time. Mm-hmm. 
So say someone is 60, he, uh, and say he has exactly the same IQ abilities as he did 30 years ago, uh, he may look better because a lot of people in their 60s maybe have gone down in IQ. Um, so you're always um, scored according to the norms at that age. Mm -hmm. So people lose memory mm -hmm. and executive function slowly with time. If you become demented, you lose it faster. Mm -hmm. And so your IQ will look a lot worse over time if you're becoming demented. Have you guys looked at the possible impl uh, implications of fasting as a treatment? Because I know there's been a lot of people in the nutrition space who, or the longevity space who use fasting for those purposes. Could there be any implications with some of the mitochondrial health and things like that? Yeah, I think there are positive effects uh, uh, fasting on cognition and metabolic processing. So, um, you know, having a diet that has high glucose mm -hmm. is not good uh, because high levels of glucose in the brain actually stimulates atherosclerosis of the vessels of the brain. And one of the most common types of cognitive decline is a vascular dementia. So a medication like metformin actually is good for the general population because it lowers the amount of glucose in the bloodstream. And uh, it also lowers your uh, blood pressure. Most people have too high of a blood pressure, which is also damaging to the vessels in the brain, as is atherosclerosis. And because of those two reasons um, that metformin tends to improve, you have better cognition with age when you take metformin. Metformin also lengthens your telomeres, uh, so you live longer. It also protects you somewhat against cancer because um, it does lower the mTOR pathway. And a lot of the um, uh, proteins on the mTOR pathway are growth-promoting proteins that could exacerbate cancers, um, and metformin can lower that. So metformin has a lot of very positive effects on the metabolism. It lowers your hemoglobin A1C, so those individuals that have an elevation above 5.6 and are developing type 2 diabetes um, do better on metformin. And could you talk a little bit about, I guess, the history of metformin? Because it's something... Uh, Granted, I could just be uneducated on the topic, but it's something I've been hearing a lot more of recently, especially in the longevity space. Has it been thoroughly researched for a long time or is it kind of an emerging tech? So it's been thoroughly researched for a long time and it goes back to the ancient Egyptian papyruses. It goes back to 1500 BC where they wrote about metformin, but they didn't call it that. They called it French lilac, which is a plant that has high levels of metformin. And in the pharaoh times, they used it for a lot of problems. Um, and then it was a French physician in the 1950s who, uh, who pointed out the benefits of metformin for type 2 diabetes. And so it's been researched since the 1950s. Um, 
for that. People are more interested in the positive aspects of aging now. Um, but the cancer researchers have been looking at that for a few years now. Uh, animal researchers have too. And of course, metformin in the animal models of Fragile X is where I read about it first. So it actually can reverse the features of Fragile X syndrome in the Drosophila fly model of Fragile X and also in the Fragile X knockout mouse. And it's also helpful for the Fragile X rat model. And so that was all looked at before we started anecdotal work with humans with Fragile X syndrome. Very interesting. Could you speak a little bit more about the correlation between telomere lengths and aging and why the certain length correlates to maybe internal age or what that term even means? Yeah, so the telomeres are the uh, bottom ends of chromosomes. And um, when they become shortened, that correlates with a shortened lifespan. And there are certain things that can shorten the telomeres. Um, individuals with Fragile X syndrome and premutation involvement have shorter telomeres than the general population. So I think different toxins can shorten telomeres. Um, you know, I don't... Maybe chemotherapies, it's hard to know for sure, but uh, when telomeres get shortened, it's associated with a lower lifespan for the cell, and um, and then that gets reflected in, in shorter lifespan for the individual where you're <clears throat> whose telomeres you're measuring, usually in uh, the white blood cells. And could you speak to some general practices for the general population to retain cognition as they age? Yes. So I think about this a lot because I'm aging. <laughs> you guys aren't, but, uh, you know, when you start aging, so what's very important is exercise. Mm -hmm. Exercise stimulates neurogenesis or the making of new neurons. You want to avoid uh, psychiatric problems like depression or anxiety uh, because they can lead to atrophy in the brain. And um, individuals, you know, with depression can develop dementia more easily. You even get an acute pseudo-dementia when you're depressed. Um, I don't know if you've ever been depressed, but sometimes you feel like you're losing your cognition when you're depressed. Um, and so we like to use... Um, uh, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications like SSRIs that increase the level of serotonin in the synapse, and that can treat both depression and anxiety. But SSRIs, uh, which are selective serotonin reuptake blockers, can um, stimulate neurogenesis or the making of new neurons. You know, we used to think that you're born with, you know, an absolute number of neurons and they never increase in life. But now we know that's not true. You can make more neurons, particularly in your hippocampus, which is very important for cognition. And so you want to do all the things that can stimulate neurogenesis or the making of new neurons. And probably the most important thing is exercise. Um, 
the more you exercise, the better the neurogenesis. But also uh, avoiding toxins in your life. And by toxins, I mean alcohol, which is toxic to neurons, okay? I think young people your age don't realize that. Um, but for those with the premutation, neurons die more easily when they're exposed to alcohol. So getting drunk is not only very bad for the fetus that a woman may be carrying, um, but it's also very bad for her own brain. And in fact, the diagnosis of fetal alcohol in a child uh, leads to uh, uh, a very high risk of death within the next 10 years for the mother herself. How common is drinking during pregnancy still? Because I feel like for a lot of people, it's an obvious, do not do it. Are people still doing it? And if so, how prevalent is it? Yeah, it's about uh, 10% of pregnant women. Drink. Wow. So, and it, I think it also depends on what country you live in. Mm -hmm. I think the sense. British drink more than you realize. I remember I was visiting uh, Ireland and the McGuinness uh, factory, the Guinness factory, beer factory. And they were talking on the bus about how important it is to drink beer when you're pregnant and when you're breastfeeding. I said, are you nuts? That can lead to fetal alcohol. Oh, we don't believe in fetal alcohol syndrome. I mean, it's just that's crazy, bizarre how people think in different parts of the world. So alcohol is toxic, but f different sorts of fumes can be toxic. Mm. Um, you know, gas fumes, um, varathane. I had um, one individual with fax tests who did a lot of woodworking, used a lot of varathane without a mask, and he had a lot of white matter disease in his brain. So we got him to do that outside without, you know, uh, with using a mask to protect his brain. It made a big difference in his white matter disease. So um, I've had an individual uh, who developed FaxTAS after being hired to build um the Bay Bridge because they were in bubbles and they did soldering of the uh, bridge parts underneath and they were exposed to the fumes of the soldering and he developed tremor and ataxia after having that job. So different people can be exposed to different toxins, pesticides, insecticides, even high levels of pollution are very bad for the brain, uh, can lead to autism, you know, neurodegenerative disorders. It's really, there's a lot of toxins in the environment. So you got to keep yourself, you know, you got to be very careful to not expose yourself to toxins. Just to clarify, would he have needed to be a premutation carrier before getting exposed to the toxins and that's the toxins are what kicked the symptoms off right so premutation carriers their neurons are much more vulnerable mm. to environmental toxins um did everybody who worked on that bridge project develop access no he was probably the only one that had the premutation mm -hmm. did anybody else develop neurodegeneration i don't know but i do know for him that made a big difference. And within months, he developed tremor and balance problems. 
It's horrible. The other thing is uh, we also worry about anesthetic agents like isoflurane's um, because when you undergo general anesthesia, some of the anesthetic agents are not good for the brain. And we think the isoflurane's are the most toxic. So we recommend not having general anesthesia, if at all possible, to avoid and have IV anesthesia um, or different sorts of inhalants and avoid isoflurane's. Makes a lot of sense. In going back a little bit, how does research involving minors with disabilities differ from those that are of age and consenting adults? So um, we get consent even for minors, uh, but um, usually if it's a minor with intellectual disability, as it is in Fragile X or many forms of autism, you have to write the assent in very simple terms because they may not understand it. And then you have a regular consent form signed by the parent or the primary caretaker. So you have to get consent uh, from both groups. Um, but if you have an adult with intellectual disability, some of them are able to sign uh, consent for themselves, but sometimes, if depending on the severity of the cognitive disability, they need their um, caretaker or the person that has uh, legal authority over them to also sign. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, going back to environmental toxins, have you guys looked at phthalates at all? And the uses of, or the impact of widespread plastic usages? Yes. Well, I personally have not done that, but there is this great center of environmental toxicity here at UC Davis, and you need to talk to Pam Lyon, L-I-E-N, and she's the one to talk to about environmental toxicity, or Irva Hertz-Pichotto, either one of them uh, who work at our Center for Environmental Toxicity. Um, they're just wonderful researchers. And they can show that individuals that live near, uh, say, a field where um, uh, toxins are used, like insecticides, um, um, can have higher rates of autism. And phthalates are bad, and so is the, um, you know, particles of um, plastics in our environment. Thank you for the suggestion. We'll definitely reach out to them. Yeah, but, they're great. Yeah. Recently, it seems that society attributes a plethora of health-related issues to genetics. Could you describe your broad view on genetics? And could you briefly explain how much of our future is determined by our genetics? So, yeah, the, um, the phenotypic features of uh, different genetic changes can become very complex because there can be additive effects. Um, and now we study it because we're very interested in the premutation or the full mutation, how it can link up with other genetic problems and compound uh, the negative effects, um, but whether a targeted treatment can still be useful. For instance, we published a paper that individuals that have other genetic mutations in addition to the full mutation 
can also benefit from metformin. Um, and so uh, we're looking at the synergistic effects, either deleterious or sometimes beneficial. For instance, someone who has a full mutation, uh, say a boy uh, has a full mutation on one of his X's, but he also has Klinefelter syndrome. So that's XXY. So that means he has a second X that uh, uh, does not have the full mutation. And so he's very similar in terms of severity of, of involvement to a girl, say, with two Xs, uh, with one X having a full mutation. So in some ways, having Klinefelter syndrome can uh, help cognition in a boy with fragile X full mutation. Um, but in Kleinfelters, they have small testicles because there's testicular atrophy, whereas in fragile X syndrome, you have large testicles. So a male with Kleinfelter syndrome and fragile X syndrome actually turns out to have small testicles. <laughs> so the Kleinfelter syndrome wins out and they have testicular atrophy. Interesting. For the general population who they don't think they have any genetic disorders or mutations. How should they think about genetics and their future? Does the genome determine 80% of my future and my health or 20%? Can you put a general estimate on it and how people should go about thinking about their future in regards to their health and genetics? Yeah, so heritability estimates have been done for many features, you know, for intellectual abilities, for um, behavior like anxiety, depression, um, all kinds of things. So it's quite variable what the heritability is. It's important to know that there can be significant environmental effects. And um, sometimes these are what we call epigenetic effects, um, where there can be changes in the DNA, not in the DNA structure itself, but in the activation or activity level of a given gene that's controlled by epigenetic uh, changes that happen basically on top of the DNA. Um, and sometimes um, these changes can go through generations. Like there's some toxins out there is very scary where you can have epigenetic effects that can go through to the next generation, even though the exposure um, happened in the generation before. So people are paying attention now to epigenetic effects. Um, and of course, you can change things in your life. You may go from being a lousy eater and, and, you know, having um, uh, very little exercise in your life to, you know, uh, being very active, having a lot of exercise, eating well, um, and that can uh, positively influence your genome also. So there's a lot you can do in your life, you know, to protect your genome, to stay away from toxins, um, you know, choose the right person to have kids with, 
you know, try to avoid uh, major genetic mutations. Sometimes you can do uh, testing uh, well before you're married uh, to see if anybody, you know, carries an allelic variant that could have a bad mix with yours. Um, and for many uh, uh, Jewish disorders, that's done, mm-hmm. um, particularly in Israel and in parts of the U.S., uh, where the person you're thinking about getting married, you both have tests for Tay-Sachs and other, you know, autosomal recessive problems where it wouldn't be a, big, a good mix with your genes. Um, so you can control some of that. You mentioned the founder's effect impacting the t- uh the town of Ricarte. Exactly. For the Jewish population, was that a bottleneck effect that that caused these issues? Yeah. So uh, probably at some point in time in history, there's been a lot of bottleneck effects like for the founding of Finland. There's a lot of different uh, mutations that are carried by the people in Finland, and that's thought to come from a bottleneck of the limited number of people who founded Finland, Mm. and that limited number of people carried certain genetic mutations that spread uh, throughout the population in Finland. That's why they have such a high rate of autosomal recessive disorders and um, dominant disorders. So wherever there's a a bottleneck effect, and I'm sure in some places um, where Jewish populations have lived and, you know, mate just with um, the people from their clans, there's a bottleneck effect. Um, Absolutely. Very interesting. And could you speak a little bit to trends with genetic testing, are people becoming more open to that idea, especially in relation to marriage, to go about getting the test and having a clear picture of what their future might look like beforehand? Yes. Yeah, so I think certain populations, that's very true. Um, if you have a child with a developmental disability, uh, then most family people would like to have genetic testing figuring out what the mutation is because that can make a big difference regarding treatment. And when that's found in a family, then the extended family members will oftentimes have testing. I mean, we see that all the time in Fragile X, but many other disorders. Um, And so that's becoming more and more accepted, and there's more and more genetic counseling. And also with 23andMe and other programs, you know, people are getting, you know, their genome looked at and seeing what they're predisposed to um, with breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2. There's a lot of testing that goes on there and with other uh, cancer mutations too. So those are just some areas, you know, of the population that do routine testing. And we do also for Fragile X. We recommend that uh, uh, siblings who seem to be normal, that they have the genetic testing to see if they're carriers, because it's much better to know if you're a carrier uh, before age 12, because after age 12, when you start getting into adolescence, you like everything perfect, and 
if you hear anything, you know, at 18, 19, before you're thinking about getting married or whatever, it's really can come as a blow then. Whereas, you know, if you get it when you're still a child and say you're a carrier, you know, a lot of the families will say, well, you're just like mommy. It's no big deal. And then they grow up with that knowledge and um, then they deal with it genetically later in terms of in vitro or genetic counseling to have a normal child. Well, thank you so much for coming on here today and explaining Fragile X, Fast Hacks, your discoveries, your contributions to science, how our genetics are not our future, and how our environment can also impact our future genetics. It's all very fascinating and had a great time talking with you. Yeah, I had a great time talking to you. And I want to encourage young students to go into medicine, genetics, and science because it's just amazing what's coming in the future. You know, gene therapies, cures for different disorders. It's just so exciting. And you can do so many things to help others. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been a Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.